0: BLOB TALK RADIO
1: Good evening, welcome to Monergy Life and I think one of our guests is calling in now Matt, is that you?
2: I am on the line, how are you Rob? Oh perfect, you know, sorry to
1: have kept you on hold for a bit but I couldn't bring you on until exactly 6.30
2: (laughs) No, that's no problem Uh,
1: Because that's when the show actually starts uh, uh, Chris should be calling in any minute And actually he has just called in Let me bring him on the line too Chris, is that Hi, you? Chris Verone's here Chris Verone, well, welcome to Monergy Life, Chris Verone uh, Matt has just called in, you guys are Extremely prompt and didn't even give me a chance To introduce you, so I'm going to just Take a few seconds to introduce the both Of you uh, Tonight's show is going to explore Offshore wind energy now, Chris Fallone is the uh, principal of Riverview Consulting, and we're going to get the financial end of that from him, hopefully. And uh, Matthew Art is the general manager of E4 Sciences, and we're going to find out the scientific ecological effects of wind power. So, welcome, gentlemen. Welcome to Monergy Life. How are you doing this evening?
2: Doing well, thank you. Doing great, bro. thank you.
1: Awesome. So let's just start off, uh, let's assume that our listeners are really not that familiar with the origins of wind energy. Chris, could you give us a little bit of the history in terms of when wind offshore wind energy has come into prominence and where it first started?
0: Yeah, so uh, wind power uh, is ancient, right? So we've been using wind to power ships and to grind grain and to pump water for literally thousands of years. It it actually arose in the Middle East uh, in places like Persia uh, and uh, was used by the Dutch famously to uh, reclaim land from the sea in the 1600s. But modern wind turbines uh, really started in the late 1970s. And it was the Danish uh, company, which is now called Vestas Wind Systems, where I uh, used to work, um, that uh, brought forward the first sort of commercial turbines. They were relatively small. So, you know, maybe they were, you know, 20 feet high, 50 feet high, 100 feet high on that scale. And the first market was in California in the early 1980s based on a tax. Uh, shelter uh, regime put in by Jerry Brown in his first tour as governor.
1: Right. But since it's originated in Denmark, they started to implement it in that country in the early seventies, would you say?
0: No, no, they actually didn't. So so it really was 1979 and the big market right away was California. So the Danes were exporting from the beginning. Uh, of oh. course they put up some in their native country, but uh the, the number of wind turbines is extraordinary. So um, if any of you have heard of, of a place called Tehachapi in, uh, in um, uh, California, uh, more than 5,000 wind turbines were put up in Tehachapi back in those days. So it was the center of gravity for the global business. And it wasn't until the late 80s, once the oil prices had fallen and Reagan was in office and All those tax shelters went away and so on. Uh, The U.S. market died entirely, and the focus shifted back to Denmark and Germany and some other countries in Europe.
1: Right. So at the present time, what percentage of power, let's say, in
0: Denmark is generated by offshore wind? Well, Denmark has both onshore and offshore wind. Uh, You might think of Denmark as a very urban nation, but they actually got a lot of farmland and rural areas, and so they have quite a lot of onshore wind as well. Uh, If you combine offshore and onshore wind, it's about 50% of the nation's electricity on an annual basis, and they do intend for uh, that to go up to 100% of uh, their electricity, and I think it's two-thirds of all energy uh, coming from renewable sources, uh, with wind being the primary one. Mm -hmm.
1: Now, now, Matt, when did you first get involved in um, the uh, engineering aspects of wind energy?
2: Well, on the, on the East Coast, we, we the first surveys that we have done, and just a little bit of background on us, we, we provide geophysical and geotechnical measurement services to engineering firms that are interested in all sorts of marine construction. Um, up until very recently, I would say the last two or three, four years, um, the wind energy in the Northeast is, is you know, the, the development is, has faced a number of different hurdles that Chris probably knows better than I. But the, to answer your question directly, the first study that we did for wind energy was for the National Grid, a company called National Grid, and it was done in about 2005 into six. We were looking at an area offshore of Long Island, um, through uh, and we were, we're focusing mainly on cable export route areas that that project eventually died due to um, there were some potential developments on, um, on on the south shore of Long Island and developers were strongly opposed to the idea of having wind turbines <clears throat> muck up their view of the uh, from the from the shore out to sea so the uh-huh. first first involvement that we had was was ten or twelve years ago, um, and recently it's it's you know certainly the momentum has has sort of reached a critical mass and is is continuing at, at at full force in terms of the in terms of the resources that are being applied to um, to to investigate these areas and understand what the what the impacts and what the what the subsurface and um, uh, structure is off, offshore how they're going to run cables inshore, and then also the um, and then also the impacts of, of marine <clears throat> marine communities, marine wildlife and and avian communities as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, how do you really gauge what the impact
1: is going to be environmentally? Isn't it a bit of a wild card in terms of you know well, pl- no, I... pl- pl- yeah pl- you know putting these things down in the middle of the ocean, right?
2: I, yeah, I think there's a lot of attention paid towards the different the different communities that are that are impacted. Whether it's from you know, so, so a typical a typical um, study for for a master plan would include would include aerial surveys to and then and then marine surveys to identify sort of what fish, what what uh, what migratory species, whether they're, they're marine mammals or birds or or fish are utilizing these areas. Um, there'll also be surveys that don't fully cover, but that select a representative sample of the areas that are going to be impacted and measurements will be made to determine what the habitats are on the bottom, whether it's hard bottom, whether it's soft bottom, what, what the habitats are, what species are, are on the, on the surface, on the, on the bottom, uh, on the, on the the seabed, um and what 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 species are uh what species are are in the benthic layer the, the top six inches so there's 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 a great deal of attention paid towards um understanding what that impact will be uh also you know fisheries consultants are brought in and and commercial fishermen are uh way into the to the argument um so so by making measurements and, 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 and understanding who's utilizing these areas and for what purpose, yeah. uh, they can come up with a, a pretty accurate I- identification as to what the, what, what the disruption will be. Mm-hmm.
1: Are there any studies that have been done in places that have been utilizing offshore wind, let's say in California or in Denmark, to see what the environmental or ecological impacts have already arisen from this.
2: Um, that's a, that's a good question. It's one that I don't know the answer to. Um, I don't know how how um, how different companies might have compared pre uh, pre plans, pre construction plans, and the and the and the potential impacts. And and I don't know how they've how they've um, how they've uh, compared those or if they've compared those to post-impact post ones. Post Chris, you may have a better idea. I, I, should, I should clarify something. So when
0: I was talking about California earlier, that was still onshore. So Tehachapi is a is an onshore onshore location oh, in, in Southern California. Okay. Uh, uh-huh. Offshore wind really started about uh, the year 2000 or so, and that was uh, in Denmark, uh, Horns Rev 1 and Horns Rev 2 and so on. And uh, then it went from Denmark uh, into the nearby countries, the U.K. and Germany and other countries near the North Sea. So the vast majority of of existing offshore wind installations has been in northern Europe. There are some Mm -hmm. in Asia, uh, just very small, getting going. And uh, there's one in the United States up in Rhode Island, but it's a small facility. So we're just kind of getting going with offshore. To answer your question about the, the impact, I mean, there have been some studies that have, have shown positive impacts because, you know, the, the um, marine life does like to have uh, something to cling to, right? So it, it functions as a kind of artificial reef, and so there has been some positive uh, studies. Um, you know, the, a lot of the negative side of it has to do more uh, with the construction phase, so, you know, pile driving, for example, is is deleterious to uh, to whales. Certain types of whales. So, you know, and you really have to be uh, very aware of the construction period itself, not just the operational period.
2: And from mm-hmm. the from the technical side, to that end, what what uh, what measurements are made are they're called hydroacoustic measurements, right? So, we're when 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 these things are being in place, there are there are strict limits of the decibel levels that um, that that Cause both damage to so there's two two sort of thresholds that that fish and marine mammals sturgeon Atlantic sturgeon is a big uh, fish species there there are a number of species of turtles that are averse to, to to the loud noises of pile driving and then and then whales as well but what 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 the the developers will do is they'll employ a company like ours to go out and make hydroacoustic measurements of those of those sound levels to ensure that um no sound levels propagate past a certain decibel threshold past a certain point from the from the um <clears throat> from the point of, of construction. And then the other the other the other portion of that is, is that marine mammal observers are on are in place at, at every phase of <clears throat> of sound generating construction or um sound generating uh, uh uh, research you know seismic sound or other other sounds so that um, so that marine species are protected and then i would say but that the re- other just another yeah go ahead
1: sorry i was going to say isn't it hard to really monitor those those uh, protections it sounds great in theory but who's really there to make sure that it's being monitored
2: well listen i think that the there's a there's the BOEM. Certainly carries, a, and that's the Bureau of Offshore Energy Management. Um, there is a there is a huge negative impact if BOEM's requirements are not followed and documented during these phases of construction or investigation. There are huge repercussions um, to the to the contract itself. So, so uh, you know, from personal experience, there there is there is uh, a, a huge motivation. Um, these permits are 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 years in the making, and to risk a permit out there after some, after a company's come in and and spent you know hundreds of millions of dollars at this point on lease areas, and 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 to jeopardize any of that investment or the years of time that it takes to get a permit to go out and do these investigations or to construct the wind farms is is really a is is really enough of a carrot. Uh, to make sure right. that these guys comply with the, the environmental restrictions, mm-hmm.
1: but as of now, the only the only uh, uh, one that's in place in the United States is in Rhode Island, correct? The only offshore uh, wind energy that we're getting is in Rhode Island. So this, that's, that's this right. part, uh, right? So in a sense, uh, this energy source is in its infancy in the United States. So we don't really have a big track record to see, you know, exactly whether what you're saying holds true in practice, even though there's a lot of money at stake, obviously, and these things must take a lot of time in terms of your study, the actual planning of it, the actual implementation of these offshore, um, uh, do they call them uh, farms? I mean, what do they call their offshore uh, wind energy locations? What's the best terminology to describe these things? Well they're
2: wind wind generation areas or wind energy areas. Um, wind WEA. Wind
1: energy areas. Okay. And
2: and, and then the and then of... and then to, so so that's that's one aspect of the physical installation. And then the other aspect you know, which includes turbines and and cabling between the you know, electrical cabling between the turb- turbines that the generating um uh, uh, the, the generation to a substation that is that is placed out in the wind energy area and then from the substation you have cabling that that comes onshore and so those so, those those are sort of the two aspects the, the wind right, energy so the, area the, and then the right export cable route so
1: so this is really kind of fascinating typically what would be the size of a wind energy area out in the ocean the actual size uh, where the turbines are being placed in terms of um, uh, acres, or you know, how do you describe it in terms of square feet, or what? Um, what would be a typical the, the, area? The that, quick answer so, is they're,
0: they're pretty big, but um, but the ocean is even <laughs> bigger, right? So so uh, the the way to think about it is, you know, uh, first of all, I would I would use a term like wind power plant. Uh, I like that one. Uh, you can mm-hmm. also talk about an, an array, uh, A-R-R-A-Y, an array of wind turbines. Mm-hmm. I'm
1: but, sorry, but can you still hear me? Yes. Can you still hear me? Sorry. Idea? Yes, we can still hear you. Can you give us some idea as to the actual physical size of these things?
0: Yeah. So so uh, if you look at what's going on right now, this is this is kind of, offshore wind 2.0 right so we had a period from 2000 to about uh 2012 or so where we had a first attempt at this and cape wind is probably the poster child for that you know off of cape cod uh but there were also others there were uh it was fisherman's energy and new jersey and so on and all of that failed uh and and the establishment of bohm uh, really uh the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, was really a response to that. We didn't have a single federal agency that could oversee everything and, and have one, uh, you know, process. So the BOEM process is a five-year process, and it, it's really all-encompassing. So the developer doesn't have to go back and forth between 16 different agencies and never know if they're going to get where mm-hmm. they're going. Um, mm-hmm. The The total number of megawatts under... Uh, uh, development right, right now across four states, so across Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey and Maryland, is about 8,000 megawatts and there's roughly 10 projects. So, you know, you're talking about 800 megawatts per project uh, each uh, unit is about 8 megawatts in, in output, so you're talking about 100 turbines per, um, uh, per um, uh, power plant or, or per facility and um, you, you have to put them, you know, uh, reasonably far from each other. Otherwise, they interfere. You have a wake effect. So, so you have to put them, let's say, 10 rotor diameters apart, 8 to 10 rotor diameters apart. So if you're talking about something that's got a 100-meter uh, wingspan, uh, you've got to have, a, a, you know, a kilometer between them. So a 10 by 10 row, sorry, I'm getting there, a ten by ten row, each <laughs> one is a kilometer. You're talking about a 10, 10 kilometer by ten kilometer piece of ocean, which is big, but you know compared to the size of the Atlantic Ocean, it's very small.
1: Right now, now 8, and the,
2: nanowatt- the lease areas, are, the lease areas. Yeah, just just to clarify, the lease areas are larger than that. No, Chris. But, I mean, we're talking about yes, we're course. talking about probably 10, 10, at least ten by 10, 100 square hundred square miles. Correct. Correct. So so yeah. the,
0: the, you're not going to use the entire leaf area. You're you're probably going to pick a, a part of that that's that's closer to the shore so your your cables aren't as long and you also avoid any problem areas like a shipwreck that might be there or something else, right? Right.
2: Right, or, so or, those... or an environmental yeah, the environment, you know, there's 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 certain sensitive areas one one of the hot hot topics in New York right now is, is that in New York bite is one of the largest scallop fisheries in, 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 the Northeast. You know, it's one that, that fishermen from, from Maine to, to Maryland visit to, 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 to farm scallops. And so there's portions of those or, or in direct vicinity of the lease areas that are, are strategically avoided, but yes, subsurface conditions, habitat. You know, all of these things, all, all of these considerations will determine where the turbines get placed. Right.
1: So, Matt, what at what point in the process do you get involved with your study? Um, you know, is this before people actually lease the, the ocean area to develop this, before they apply to the government for approval? At what point do you get involved?
2: well what you know for us the the reentry into into investigating these areas is relatively new so i can say recently what we've done is we've we've been involved in the after the after the permits have been in place or after the leases have been established and when they get into the when they get into the sort of the the preliminary design of these infrastructure specifically the cable routes and, and how those cable routes need to be routed and what depths there may be hazards or, you know, archaeological, uh, sensitivities, or, um, or, and, and, and at what depth, you know, so, so, so these cables have to have to be buried and, um, and, and, and certain sediments are more conducive to cable burial than others. Right. So sand is, sand is relatively easy to trench through. Hills and rocks, uh, you know, bedrock is is not. So, so we're primarily recently we've been more involved after, you know, for the for the design and, and planning, you know, after the planning phase into the design phase. Um, but that that being said, there's there there are organizations like ours um, that that uh, get involved at 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 very early phases, whether it's for organizations like NYSERDA, which Chris is very familiar with or for BOEM, we've done a few we've done a few desktop studies for for BOEM with regards to, to offshore uh, classification of offshore areas um, but but you know scientifically people are involved at at you know throughout this process from from siting from uh, from siting all the way to sort of monitoring cables and, and structures once they're in place
1: right You know, it sounds, uh, to the layperson, which I include myself in, in terms of uh, my knowledge about offshore wind, it sounds very hyper-technical. You know, when you talk about where to place the cables, um, you know, there's such sensitivity in the ocean, like in every uh, ecosystem. You know, I I can't even imagine, you know, how those choices are made, right? Because, you know, in a sense, we are upsetting the natural order by putting these things out in the ocean. I mean, there's no two ways about it. So, you know, um, it's it's got to be extremely technical in terms of, you know, where and how well, these cables are located.
2: Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, there's a lot of different criteria that have to be met for a cable to go into the ground, right? I mean, there's a lot of sensitivities, you know, whether it's whether it's natural, you know, environmental, or whether it's commercial activity, or shipping, or... Um, you know, existing utilities, you know, existing infrastructure in place. There's a, there's a, there's, there's, there's hurdles, you know, from, from point A all the way to completion. Um, Right. You know, that being said with upsetting the natural order, you could also argue that we're restoring a little bit more of the natural order by, by, by not, you know, by producing some energy that doesn't have quite the, the, uh, the, the negative impacts on our, on our, uh, on our atmosphere. Um, so, so, yeah, everything, everything in terms of development is a trade off. And, and that's where, you know, good science and good engineering and, 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 and proper planning really, really can, can, can make a huge difference because, you know, what, what everybody's trying to do is, is minimize impact, provide a, provide an efficient and sustainable resource, and, and have a plan for, for, uh, for you know, what to do when when these things reach their lifespan. I'm
1: sorry, when they reach
2: what? I would,
0: I would make a comment, too. I think, you know, if you think about uh, undersea cabling, uh, you know, the first transoceanic undersea cable was more than 100 years ago. Uh, there is plenty of uh, cabling, telecom and transmission lines uh, between Connecticut and New York, New York and New Jersey and so on. This, this is something we've done a great deal of in the last, You know 20 or 30 years and uh, the other thing we've learned a lot from is offshore drilling uh, in the oil and gas uh, industry and and some techniques can actually and even vessels uh, can be retrofitted and used uh, for the purpose of uh, uh, offshore wind uh, construction Uh, the good news is that you'll never have a blowout uh, you know with an oil spill and things like that from a wind turbine Uh, they are uh, very safe Right. And how
1: tall are are the typical wind turbines?
0: They're getting higher and higher, but, you know, offshore, you don't need that much height because you don't have trees and other rough uh, features in the landscape. So I would say, you know, roughly speaking, you're looking at a 100 meter hub height and, uh, you know, maybe another – say, uh, 60 meters or so uh, of blade on top of that. So the, the very tip height would be, say, 160 meters, something like that, uh, and, um, you know, hub height of, of 100. Uh, but, but there are turbines that are taller than that. I mean, but but they, usually they come in in a place like Sweden where you have very dense forest and you need to get up above that uh, layer of air so that you can get more of a laminar flow, more of a nice, smooth flow. Uh, but you know, offshore, it's less of an issue. Mm-hmm.
2: Just,
1: hey, Chris. Just one thing that well, yeah, go ahead, Matt.
2: One one thing that might be interesting just to touch on because I know we're 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 running out of time here. But um, Chris, you want to talk a little bit about the 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 efficiency gain by by higher and and and, and longer turbine blades? Yeah. Well, I mean, th- this is maybe the biggest story people don't appreciate
0: uh, is that you know the the wind turbines of 20 years ago were really rather small. I mean, they were commercial grade and they were putting power into the grid, but they were fairly small uh, affairs, you know, sub sub one megawatt. And, you know, maybe they were, you know, a hundred feet high or, or a couple of hundred feet high. Uh, the blades uh, technology that, that Matt's alluding to, uh, which often includes carbon fiber now, uh, is so space space age that these blades can be extremely long, uh, and we're getting up towards 100-meter-long 100, 100 blades now, um, which require a, a really a great deal of technical sophistication, but also uh, they have to be very cheap, too, at the same time, right? So um, it, it's, it's been a lot of engineering over decades to get uh, to the size and efficiency that we're talking about now. And the net of it is that uh, wind power has become very cheap, uh, wind power is probably, uh, especially onshore wind power, is probably the cheapest kind of power we can make. Mm-hmm.
1: So, what's the allure of offshore wind energy
0: contrasted with onshore wind energy? Well, onshore wind energy, as I mentioned, in a place like Texas, say, or something like that, uh, Wyoming is very, very cheap. Um, you, you know, the land is flat, and and the, the wind is very good, and and you know, uh, labor is, is is reasonable, and so on. So. You know, that's what you would do if you were there. But if you're in the Northeast, a state like New York or Massachusetts, uh, we have a pretty dense population and we really don't have, uh, you know, much in the way of cheap, flat, nice land to use. uh, And the wind isn't as good either. So, So really, wind is somewhat limited in the Northeast. There are some installations, but they tend to be smaller and more of a niche kind of thing. Um, on the other hand, we have this enormous ocean uh, and excellent wind, some of the best wind in the world right offshore. So it kind of you know, begs uh, for development uh, in this part of the country. Uh, would not work in Florida, for example, would not work in Georgia. They don't have the wind. Uh, but up here in this part of the country, uh, it's, a, it's a pretty natural thing to look at. And when they did the uh, auction a couple of years ago for Long Island, uh they literally had uh three different uh types of, of uh, uh, power uh, competing for that contract one was natural gas one was a transmission line from canada so it was hydro power from quebec but with a very very long extension cord and um and offshore wind and offshore wind won the bidding as the cheapest source of power. So, um, you know, uh, even though it's, you know, it's more expensive here and it's more expensive offshore than it is in Texas by quite a lot. Still, it is a very competitive source of energy for this part of the country. Mm-hmm. And then I would, just add, I would just
2: tag on to that, Rob, that, that what you're also dealing with is a population density in the, in the, in the coastal communities that's, that's higher than any other population density in 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 our area. So so we have right. we have probably you know there's 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 the there's the demand for this this new cheap and clean power. Right. Now
1: the 8000 megawatts that you referred to earlier Chris, what percentage yeah. of our grid is that going to actually satisfy of our electrical needs?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's not like it's going to take over the whole thing, but it will be a very substantial contributor uh, in a place like Long Island or uh, the tri-state area. So if you think about Indian Point, for example, which is one of the biggest generation stations we have, it's a nuclear station just north of New York City, um, you know, uh, I think it has 2,000 megawatts, and all of that can be replaced by offshore wind. Over time, so so it's a big contributor, but it's 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 not going to be the majority or anything like that. But uh, it could be the majority for Long Island during you know windy parts of the year. You know, there's there's always a windy season, and then there's a, a less windy season. Usually, the, the less windy seasons in the summer in, in most uh, areas in this part of the world. Um, so you know, during the summer, you'd have to you rely more on your other sources of generation. Um and then you know uh, in a in a you a know, winter storm you, you know you might have a hundred percent from from wind so it it' it'll vary uh-huh. it's a variable source
1: uh-huh. is the intention behind this to replace nuclear power
0: well, this has been the the pattern now in in multiple countries so uh the first one was was the u k the u k had a debate uh, about ten years ago uh whether they should uh, have a nuclear renaissance. And it was very much a political debate, and the nuclear guys lost, and that really forced them to, to find something else. They didn't want to rely on natural gas uh, solely because it was coming from Russia, and they didn't feel that was a, a stable source of mm-hmm. supply. They knew that their coal was gone, uh, and so they didn't really have a lot of options. And so they, they chose offshore wind as, as, a, as their major uh, you know, new initiative, which has you know uh, driven uh, you know tremendous amount of development in the UK. Germany then basically chose the same thing uh, with their Energiewende, and you know I think uh, you know in some places like New York, uh, this will be a trade-off of nuclear megawatts, uh, you know, to to a, to a, a, a great extent, uh, uh, and also some oil, old old oil burning and other fossil uh, will also be traded off uh, versus the offshore wind. Right.
1: So is, has there been any political uh, interest one way or the other, um, based on what's going on in our country, pushing this
0: or, or against it?
1: I mean, what's the prevailing uh, feeling of the current administration on something like offshore wind? That's
0: a terrific question. So, You know, the politics in in the United States comes at three levels. So there's the local politics, there's the state level, which is really critical for offshore wind, and then there's the federal. So, um, you know, uh, at the local level, uh, it's a very mixed bag. There are some communities that love this, and there's also some that fight it, right? So you you, you have both. Uh, On the state level, there's been flip-flops over time. So New Jersey was one of the early proponents, and I attended a – an offshore wind conference in Atlantic city in 2010. And it was, you know, this big conference, 700 people for, for an industry that didn't exist yet in this country. Um, But then when Chris Christie came in, that all uh, turned around completely. And he basically uh, stopped all uh, activity for the next eight years. And it's only recently with governor Murphy that we now have a a, a change back uh, and a very strong change back towards, uh, towards development again in New Jersey. At the federal level, um, you know, we were all pretty surprised that the Trump administration's been very positive on offshore wind. Uh, he had had some negative comments about offshore wind back in the old days because uh, he could see these turbines from his, uh, his uh, golf course in Scotland. But um, when he realized the amount of money coming in to the United States from foreign countries with these lease payments, uh, for example, Statoil paid you know, 40-something million for uh, one lease off of uh, New York. Uh, he uh, said, wow, this is this is actually really good for our country. So he's he's been very positive, and he's instructed the Department of the Interior to, you know, remove red tape, you know, accelerate uh, process and things like that. So I think, in general, the offshore wind business has been very appreciative of the uh, new administration's stance. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, what's the typical time frame? So, so does it work where a lease is, is put out to auction for a particular geographical area and people compete as to what they would pay for it? Is that how all this starts?
0: Well, it all starts with an analysis of, of alternative uses and, and fisheries and all that, right? So, so BOEM, before they define the lease area, they go through a very uh, you know, lengthy process to, to pick an area that's not going to cause problems. The scalloping uh, zone that um, that Matt mentioned was an oversight. They, they probably should have caught that, but you know they didn't. So anyway, um, you know uh, the, 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 they no, try to actually, define.
2: Actually... Sorry. So, say again. It's actually Sorry. carved out. Of... No, it. it's actually carved out. Of, it's actually carved out of the New York BITE, um, uh Empire Wind Lease Block. So there's it's it's you know the Lease Block sort of comes on two sides of it and then leaves the leaves the critical habitat open so they they were they were they identified that correctly
0: oh they did okay okay yeah yeah, but it's still causing
2: a problem with the with the scallop uh, men i i think so i think just in in general that that they're concerned they're very concerned about development near the near the critical resource. Got it.
0: OK, well, I'm glad they caught it. But 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 there's always going to be something. I mean, you know, it's never perfect, but they really do a, a pretty good job of defining the lease area to begin with so that, that you're going to have a minimal amount of problems. And then you're right. Then the next phase is there's an auction of the of the lease areas. We've just had a, a new set of lease areas you uh, know, go under auction just recently, uh, which is also, you know, an initiative of the of the Trump administration. Um, uh-huh. And uh, you know, then it's 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 quite a number of years between that and uh, something being operational. Uh, I, I mentioned before it was a five-year process, but it's probably going to be more than that, really, when you include the construction period, uh, you know, in its entirety, and the preparation period. So, let's say five to eight years uh, from uh, gaining a lease to to having something spinning. Mm
1: -hmm. so really in the u.s it really is in its infancy the offshore wind energy
0: system well as i mentioned this is the second second wave this is sort of 2.0 and um you know i would say it started uh you know around 2012 i think it was 2012 when when bone was created uh or or so i might be off by a year there but uh anyway uh you know and it's early days but on the other hand these 8,000 megawatts, I think, are really going to happen, uh, and you know that's going to be a very large contributor to uh, you know reducing our carbon uh, uh, footprint as a society, uh, to renewing our energy infrastructure, which uh, is aging and inefficient, um, and um, you know getting us in the game globally uh, in terms of um, in terms of this business. One interesting sidelight is. You know, uh, of the four or five developers that are active in this business, uh, none of them are American uh, at this point. There was, there was one, but they sold out recently to, uh, to the Danes. So it's all Danish, Norwegian, uh, Italian, and Spanish uh, developers uh, that are active in this business. There's no, no American entrant anymore.
1: Well, why do you think that
0: is? I think it has to do with track record. I think, you know, it's very tough as a, as a first-timer to uh, get funded and, and, you know, get the skill sets you need and get funded uh, to, to do this for the first time. Uh, it's much, much easier to uh, have a local presence, uh, you know, and there were some local companies, but then they end up selling out to, um, to big moneyed interests from Europe uh, that, you know, that frankly have done this for 20 years, and, you know, we're way behind, mm-hmm. so
1: yeah I'm surprised that maybe some of the oil companies have not proposed joint ventures with with some of these European companies that have the you know the expertise from doing this for about twenty years because that would get the Americans actually involved in in these leases um and it's kind of interesting that you note that these are all well, foreign companies um you know politically how does that how does that um, uh, how does that affect um you know, um, the federal desire to have foreign companies developing these leases. Are they, are they not interested in having Americans doing it? or It's just about the money or what?
2: Matt, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that the, the shell has just, uh, it was, was partnered in, in one of the, um, one of the lease, uh, purchases for, uh um, uh, that, would, that that just happened, and and so so from from some of the intel that I've that I've gotten, that's that's sort of around the corner, and okay. and will probably. But but Shell isn't Shell's Dutch as well. So <laughs> so even though they're they're a, they're a, a, have a strong presence, an established presence in the U.S., it's still it's still a it's still a foreign right. foreign oil. Yeah, right. The, right. the oil companies that have been involved.
0: Uh, have been mostly European. So, Statoil, which is now called Equinor, is the state-owned uh, Norwegian oil company. Uh, they are very involved in this. Uh, Dong Energy, Danish oil and natural gas company, uh, has renamed themselves Orstad, and they are the global leader in this. So they're you know going away from their oil and gas roots, uh, you know, towards this. Um, and uh, as as Matt mentioned, Shell and then also BP. Uh, have been involved at times in the business, but they kind of come in and out, and they, I would say, been more on the margins. Uh, but all mm-hmm. four of those are, you know, they're they're European oil companies. Uh, the American oil companies, like you know Exxon, people like that, have have really not shown interest in in, uh, in this business. Interesting. Uh, uh,
1: you know, it's it's just another example where, uh, particularly in this case, the Europeans seem to be way ahead of us in terms of development, not only with offshore wind, but with solar energy, too, in terms of, uh, you know, the percentage of energy being generated by it. I think in Germany, it's a very large share of their energy that's generated by solar power, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Certainly in some areas, you know, Bavaria uh, was was one of the early leaders, and at one point, Germany was number one in the world. I I haven't looked lately. Uh, I know China's catching up to them but but yeah certainly uh, you know uh, each country comes at this with their own resources needs alternatives and so on and um, you know the US is a very very major oil and gas country uh, probably number one in the world uh, by by many metrics Uh, and uh, it affects our politics it affects our options it affects our costing Um, but you know look if, if you look at Texas as an example uh, you know, Texas is the number one state for wind power in the United States. It's got almost 20 gigawatts uh, of wind. Uh, you know, that's been established over the last 20 years. So even right there in the oil patch, uh, if it makes sense, people will build it. And I, I think that's what will happen with offshore. Where it makes sense, uh, people will build
2: it. And I think that's a that's a great that's okay. a great sentiment right is is that what what we need as a as a country is is what I would call indigenous energy right so where do we get energy that's close to the source that where where uses are close to the source and where where distribution is 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 minimized right cuz especially with electricity you're you're losing you're losing you're losing power over the distribution grid and and so I think that's, that's a that's an excellent point, Chris. Is that is that what we as a country need to do and have started to do and need to do, but need to do better is find what sources of energy we can find <clears throat> closer to the closer to the end users.
0: Mhm.
2: Uh-huh. Uh, you and that, know, in the few remaining minutes. But- yeah.
1: No, I, I think that's great. I just wanted to ask both of you in the few remaining minutes we have to the show what would be the major obstacles that either one of you or both could see in terms of implementing offshore wind in, let's say, the next five years?
2: Chris, you want to start?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's a great question, first of all. Um, I, I would say most of the obstacles have actually been overcome, Uh, And we have a reasonable uh, straight shot to getting this done. Uh, That said, um, you know, there are issues that that come up in a a hot economy, which we have right now. Uh, It can be difficult to find labor that you need, other resources that you need, because they're very much in demand, right? So I I would say, if, if anything, it might be something along those lines. You know, interest rates may go up. Um, you know, they are going up, they may go up more, you know, we're very sensitive to interest rates, we're very sensitive to labor rates. Um, there could be issues with unions, things like that. I, I think it's it's those type of issues. Um, I think most of the big, uh, you know, uh, foundational issues, like, you know, the whales and the, you know, the uh, locations, the siting of the cables and so on. I think most of that is is in hand. I think most of these projects are far enough along that we know that they're practical. But um, you know, there's always uh, you know operational issues in construction, uh, vessels yep. getting the vessels where they need to be. Uh, there's a thing called the Jones Act, which you have to comply with, which can be tricky. Yep. So things like that. Matt.
2: Yeah, no, I, I I think the Jones. I was just going to bring up the Jones Act as as one, and then maybe maybe the other the other thing that I was thinking off the top of my head is is that we're when developing offshore, we're 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 unloading a lot of a lot of power into areas where, um, it, you know, it's not like you can you can run a cable on and tap into the grid and. In uh, you know Gilgo New York, right where where you, right. you you know while you have a population there you, you don't have the infrastructure so so it's finding right. these these routes to deliver the power into a place on the grid that can accept the power. So I think well, that I think we, that's probably
1: I, I hate to interrupt you we have just run out of time. I want to thank both of you for being on this illuminating uh, show offshore Wind with Crescent Malone and Matthew Art. Gentlemen, thank you for being on Monergy Life. Thank you to all our listeners tonight, and I wish all of you a very pleasant evening. Good night, everybody.
0: Thanks, Robert.
2: Good night.